0: So Webster defines comfort as relief from pain or distress of mind, support, consolation under calamity. So when you're in the trouble, right, God gives the comfort. That's what we're going to see today. In other words, you could define comfort in the context of what it is the absence of. It's the absence of fear. It's the absence of trouble or tribulation or distress or fighting or frustration. And that's all true. But if we're really going to get the best definition that we can possibly get, we're going to get it from the Bible. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to look in John chapter 14 and verse number 16 because you can't talk about comfort and not go to John chapter 14 where Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. And that comforter, notice, is capitalized because it's a person. It says that he, that he, who? The comforter that he may abide with you forever. Well, who is he? Well, the Bible defines it for you. You don't have to wonder. You keep reading down to verse 26, and it says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So real godly comfort, well, it comes from God himself. It comes from the person of the Holy Spirit in dwelling your life as you have surrendered to him your entire life and soul. You want some more info on this? You can read in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16. Let's just look at 16, 7. John 16:7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you, Jesus says to his disciples, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so we understand what this is all about. By the way, before we do that, can I just mention to you that this is yet another of many, many endless places where the King James translators did such a superior job to the translators of other versions of the Bible because in your King James Bible only it uses the word comforter whereas other versions of the Bible will say helper or advocate You can have a helper that offers no comfort. You can have an advocate that offers no comfort, you see. But this Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is to be known as the Comforter, right? And the thing that Jesus is speaking of when he's talking about the coming of the Comforter, doctrinally, most of you Bible students are aware, that's the coming of the indwelling Holy Spirit At the day of Pentecost, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension up into heaven, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to indwell and seal all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doctrinally, that's what he's speaking of in John 14 and 15 and 16. But inspirationally, practically, as we can make application to our daily lives, I want you to see that according to the words of Jesus Christ, God's comfort is made available to you only after a crisis of sorts. Jesus announces, "I'm going away," and don't you know those disciples were like, "What do you mean you're t- what do you mean you're going away?" And they begin to enter this crisis of mind. Jesus is leaving, and he's like, "No, no, that's okay. There's comfort coming afterwards." And can I just tell you, in Christian ministry, there's no shortage of crises. Because ministry is taking the Word of God and dealing with people, and people are, by nature, sinful and problematic. We all are. And ministry exists to help people who are in trouble, right? 2 Corinthians is all about ministry, And so we wouldn't be surprised to see that the whole book of 2 Corinthians begins by explaining comfort. Chapter number one, verses three to six. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, you see the association, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, how? By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ and whether we be afflicted it is for your consolation and salvation whether which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer or whether we be comforted it is for your consolation and salvation. There's a lot of comfort being emphasized in chapter number one as we kicked off this study talking about how ministry brings suffering. And whenever there's suffering, well, God is going to also balance that out with comfort. So the book begins with comfort, the book on ministry, and the book on ministry ends with comfort in chapter number 13. And verse 11, it says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And we'll get to study in that in detail when we get to chapter 13 at the end of this study sometime later this year. But in today's study, the title that I've given the message is Finding Comfort in Ministry. And that really is the theme coming through this chapter, Finding Comfort in Ministry. And in fact, it's so critically important Because if you can't find comfort in ministry, you're going to get burned out. And if you're just going to get burned out and look at the circumstances, you're going to quit. And it's going to be hard for you. Um, But before we get into the details of how exactly we can find comfort in ministry in these three points of our study today, can I just kind of give a quick disclaimer? Uh, I I feel impressed to to kind of make this point a clarification before we go on. Some of you are nervous already. Can I just say... If you're listening to this and in your so-called, and I'm, I'm trying to be kind, Christian life, you have been living your life with nothing but your personal comfort in mind, then you know what? This message really isn't for you. It's not. I mean, what you need to do, friend, and, and I say this out of love, is to start getting busy serving the Lord and evangelizing and sharing the gospel with other people so that you can begin to see what opposition actually looks like. And then you can appreciate the comfort that God offers through the opposition because the context is the difficulty comes as a result of your ministry. It's not just God comforting all the little carnal, fake Christians that live for themselves and refuse to do anything in ministry. That's not the context. Okay, so let's read. Chapter number 7, verse 7, verses. Follow along, will you? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled With comfort I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to be our teacher, and then we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage, Lord, I pray that your Spirit indeed would do what you have promised that you would do, that you would teach us the truths of your word. We surrender our lives to you. We ask you to come and just to fill us and to speak to us through your word. And I pray for each and every one that's here, because each and every one has his own set of circumstances that he's dealing with. If somebody's here and they're not sure that they're saved, that today would be the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that they would recognize their need for a Savior, they'd surrender to you and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for those of us that know that we're saved, but yet for some reason we've been kind of living for our own comfort and neglecting doing ministry, that we'd be convicted and repent of that idea and that we would turn and begin to decide that we're going to serve you regardless of the cost. And for those of us that have been slugging out and trying to do that, God, I pray that you would teach us How to receive the comfort that you provide for us. And teach us through these words so that we can keep our acts sharp. So that we can keep going out there and helping and serving until the day that you call us home. Lord, we look forward to learning what you have for us. And we thank you in advance in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, the first way, the first thing that we're going to see, point number one in your outline, is separation from sinners. Verse number one, separation from sinners, and, and I would say that this is the very first level of beginning to acquire God's comfort into your heart and into your life. I would also say that separation from sinners should be the easiest possible way to make such an application. Verse number 1, chapter 7, verse number 1 starts with this phrase, "...having therefore these promises." Well, anytime it says having therefore something, you have to go back and find out what he's talking about. In this case, it's just the two previous verses at the end of chapter number 6. So verses 17 and 18, wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And here's some promises, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." And so what we have here is that God gives some promises in those verses. And the promises are very clear. He says, having therefore these promises, understanding that the promises are, God will receive you and he will be a father unto you. And you could connect and you'll be his sons and daughters. He's going to enter into that family relationship with you. And he says that the way that you're to secure these promises is to come out from among them. Be ye separate touch not the unclean thing. You're like, what is all that about? We'll go back and listen to the tape. Actually, nothing's on tape anymore. I'm old. (laughs) In other words, what is he saying? Distance yourself, right, from any close personal relationships with unsaved people. That's exactly what he's talking about in context. If you just glance up, for example, in chapter 6 and verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's exactly what he's talking about in context. So if you distance yourself from your closest, most intimate relationships with people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, well then God says that he's going to receive you into a close personal family relationship with him. Now, just for clarity's sake, the context of what's being spoken of in chapter 6 and chapter 7 is not the prescription for how to obtain salvation. You don't avoid everything dirty in the world so that you may be saved. That would be an error. That's not the context. But rather than a prescription on obtaining salvation, it's just a description of what kind of a relationship God wants to have with you. He wants to be a father unto you. He wants you to look unto him as your heavenly father. You could then just understand verse 1 as saying, having therefore a family relationship with God, let us do some things. And and back to our text in verse number 1, letter A on your outline, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves. It's not let us allow God to cleanse us. Let us cleanse ourselves. This is something that we do. This is therefore, you know, this is not a commentary about our standing in Christ. Once you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in good standing with Him. He has forgiven all your sins. You are perfect and pure and holy and sinless before Him because when He sees you, He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are completely and totally forgiven. That's who you are in Christ. But that's not the context. What we're talking about is not the standing, but the state. What is your current state of affairs? How you doing today? How's life been going for you lately, right? This is what the Bible terms sanctification. Daily, practically walking with the Lord and cleaning up your life. Psalm 119, verse number 9, this would have been a memory verse for people who did discipleship, right? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Who's doing the cleansing? The young man is. The young man is cleansing his own way. How's he doing that? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So stay in the word of God. Let God's word be the washing of the water of the word of God to keep you clean In your daily lives. If you want to know how to keep yourself clean, well, you better find out what the Word says about how to keep yourself clean. So, we're just going to do that in the context of the immediate passage of Scripture we're studying here. So, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. So, the first thing is number one, filthiness of the flesh. Filthiness of the flesh. We need to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh. Now, you know, looking around the room, you guys look really nice. And I imagine if I got close enough to you, I I, I think probably most all of you took a shower today. Probably be good. At least last night at the latest, right? I mean, you smell good. I mean, okay, that's not what we're talking about. Although, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The filthiness of the flesh, it is a spiritual concern. Okay, so filth, obviously, is just pollution, corruption, okay? Filthiness is the state of being filthy. It, you're in that condition, right? That's, that's what it's discussing. In other words, it, filthiness is the predominant characterization of your life. So what we need to do is we need to continually keep keeping ourselves clean from those things. You remember the story of Jesus Christ when they were up in the upper room and they were about to eat the Passover uh, before his crucifixion, and John chapter 13 specifically is that story where Jesus brings out the basin, and he washes the disciples' feet, you know that? And he goes around, and he says to Peter, you know, he's washing everybody's feet, and they're freaking out, like, Jesus washing my feet, what's going on? And Peter's like, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, man, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I'm, you're going to have nothing to do with me. And he's like, well, then, give me the bath. I mean, let's just pour it on, head to toe, let's wash it all. And he's like, look, Pete, seriously, you just don't get it. You're already clean, you just need to keep your feet clean, and you need me to help you get that done. Okay, so this is the kind of thing we're talking about, because Pete, he's already a believer in Jesus Christ. He's already clean, right, if we're going to make a spiritual comparison, but walking through this filthy world day by day, you need to make sure you wash your feet. You need to make sure you get the little accounts with God that you mess up walking through this world taken care of or else you'll have no part with Jesus, no fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that's the idea that he's talking about. So filthiness of the flesh, well, the Bible has a lot to say about the flesh, right? We could say that that's outward filth. And actually, that's pretty easy to define, isn't it? Because these are the things that come into your life when the filthy works of your flesh are manifest outwardly in your life, when you allow that to happen. And there's a lot of places we could go, and I don't want to take a lot of time, but Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 is probably as easy as any, where it defines for us what it calls the works of the flesh. And Christians are not immune to such things. It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? And it gives this terrible list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and in case I didn't think of one, and such like. And such like. Of the which I tell you before, as also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he gives this list of manifestations, things that are outwardly manifested through a life that is controlled by your flesh, your sinful old man. If you took the time and check me on it, you'll find that there are 17 items specifically listed, and then the one catch-all and such like. That would be 18. I mean... 18 is 6 plus 6 plus 6, but I'm sure that's just a coincidence. My question for you is this. Are any of those characteristics present in your life? I mean, look close, because some of them are a little sneaky. I mean, some of the big ones, you're like, yeah, I don't do that. But some of them, I mean, you might really need to look. Are any of these things present in your life? If so... You clean it up. That's what he's saying. Cleanse ourselves. You clean it up. You recognize that these things are, are being manifested in your life? That's real easy. Just stop it. Just stop it. Don't quit praying about it. Quit talking about it. Just stop it. That's what he says. Let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh. Face it, that's no way for a Christian to live. And if a Christian finds himself living in habitual outward filth and sin, well, you know what he doesn't have? He doesn't have the comfort of the comforter. That's what he doesn't have. All right, let's go to the next one, the filthiness of the spirit. The filthiness of the spirit. Now, this one's a little harder to define, right? And the common explanation that you'll probably get from most people or commentators if you bother to read commentaries is that this is what would be maybe described as inward filth, inward sin. Uh, You might look at the Pharisees as the example of that. Very clean on the outside doing all of the things outwardly that they were supposed to do. They were faithful in the temple. They tithed down to their very, you know, spice rack. I mean, they they were absolutely righteous on the outward appearance, but on the inside, they were still filthy. They were hypocrites, right? So you may not necessarily do outwardly noticeable acts that everyone would recognize as sinful, but maybe you're just lazy. Maybe you're stubborn. Maybe you're rebellious in your heart. Maybe you're self-righteous, maybe you're judgmental, maybe you're a glutton, maybe you're indifferent. I mean, these would be things that are problematic on the inside, whether or not they've ever taken the step to be manifest on the outside yet, right? And this is kind of the way that people would describe the filthiness of the Spirit, and that's worthy of consideration. But I, I want to ask a question because, well, I know, you guys are smart, you study the Bible and. You're probably thinking this. Technically speaking, can a saved man even have filth in his spirit? I mean, if we're born again, right? How's that even possible? 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 9 does say, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So don't answer out loud because I'm not trying to trick you, but I don't want you to be embarrassed either. Are you born of God? A lot of people would say, yes, I'm born of God. Are you immune from sinning? No, ridiculous. Of course not. Is 1 John 3, 9 a lie? No, of course not. How do we then understand what he's trying to describe? If it says you're born of God, you cannot sin. All right. I wish that were true, right? But there's something about it that we need to understand better. Otherwise, we can't possibly fully understand what God is trying to say to us. Here's, here's how it breaks down. What is it about you, Christian, you who have received Christ as your Savior, exactly, technically speaking, what is it about you that has been born of God? Is it your flesh? No. Is it your soul? not completely, it is your spirit. The Bible says you were dead in trespasses and sins, and when the Holy Spirit, when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your heart and your life, takes up residence in your previously dead human spirit, small s, filthiness of the small s spirit, and he gives you new life. The Holy Spirit now lives in you through your spirit, right? Right? Your spirit is born of God, therefore your spirit cannot sin. And it cannot sin, by the way. It is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I mean, you are secure. That's really what the Lord sees when he looks at you. So if that's true, and it is true, for a born-again Christian, what exactly is the application of the filthiness of the spirit? I mean, We played a little loose with the inward characteristics, but specifically and doctrinally, what does it mean to have the filth of the Spirit as a born-again Christian? Well, why don't we just look back into the context? Because the context comes directly from chapter number 6. And therefore, what it has to be is, it has to be the filthy spirits of the unsaved people that you're allowing into your life through your close personal relationships. They're the ones who have filthy spirits because they're separated from God, not you, right? And so what you need to do is you need to cleanse yourself from them. In other words, you need to be separate from such influences. Cleanse yourself, distance yourself from those with filthy spirits. And then, in so doing... We continue in verse 1, letter B in your outline, perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, we know that the word perfect or perfecting in your King James Bible never means sinless. It just means complete. It means mature, right? And so, with this understanding, once we are to take the steps of biblical separation from sinners, from lost people, in the context of intimate relationships. Don't get me wrong. Our ministry is to reach out to lost people. The point is we don't invite them in to pollute our lives. Once we take those steps and we keep working on that, well, we keep doing that until our holiness is complete, until our holiness is mature. Again, you could look at it as progressive holiness. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The Bible word I said before for this phenomenon theologically is sanctification. It's sanctification. Now, let me remind you of what we shared in the introduction. Comfort from the Lord comes from the Comforter, right? The Holy Ghost. And that only comes in your life as you walk with Him. So John reminds us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, This then is the message which we've heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You can be a born-again Christian, and you can walk in the filth of the power of the flesh, and you don't have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment that you're doing that. And so if you're out there saying that you have fellowship with the Lord, it doesn't say relationship, it doesn't say salvation, it says fellowship, If you're saying you're walking with the Lord and you're walking in darkness while clearly the Lord only walks in light, well, the thing that you said is a lie. Your fellowship is fake. It's not real. You don't actually have fellowship with him. It's your wish list maybe, but you haven't done it. You've got some work to do. You've got to cleanse yourself. You've got to perfect your holiness. You've got to walk in the light. Right, And the fact is, you'll never have comfort in ministry if you continue to associate with lost sinners on a personal level on a regular basis. You'll always be double-minded. You'll always be confused. You need to be separate from them. You need to come out of the darkness and into the light where the Lord is. And when you do that, He's going to develop that close fellowship to the point of making it like a family relationship. And that's where we're going in point number two. Because if we really have a family relationship with God as our Heavenly Father, then we should have, point number two, solidarity with the saints. Now this is the second level. It's a little bit harder than just distancing yourself from the bad guys. That's easy. And in this section, verses 2, 3, and 4, there is only one command, and that's receive us. Receive us. That's what Paul says that they're to do. Receive us. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul gives this command. Receive us. Why, Why would that be a problem? Why would the Corinthians have a problem receiving the great Apostle Paul? Well, don't forget that the Corinthians kind of got their feelings hurt when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book of many rebukes. It corrects many errors, right? And so they kind of got their feelings hurt when Paul wrote that first letter. In fact, you can glance down in 2 Corinthians 7 to verse number 8. We'll get to this next week. He says, "'For though I made you sorry with a letter, "'I do not repent, though I did repent. "'For I perceive the same epistle hath made you sorry, "'though it were but for a season.'" And we're going to talk about biblical sorrow next week. But I want you to see that he's still referencing the fact that they're a little twisted about the fact that he had to get up in their grill a little bit and straighten them out. They just didn't really love that. I mean, who really loves it? In verse number 4, he calls it great boldness of speech. And we've seen already in this study, Paul was a plain talker. Waist high, right across the plate. He didn't mince words. He didn't flower it up. He just told it like it is. And he left it to you to deal with it. Um, not everybody's wired that way, but if you meet people who are wired that way, just know that doesn't necessarily mean they're mean-spirited. They might be loving you very much, as we see Paul testify of his motives coming through. In fact, he assures them in verse number 2, I have wronged no man. In the way I presented to you the truth and and your error, by the way. I've corrupted no man. I have defrauded no man. Which is true. Because what Paul did in 1 Corinthians was completely and totally under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit of God. So he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he defends this over and over because he finds himself having to defend it over and over. Because when you take stands for God and for his word and for righteousness, it's not just lost people that don't like hearing about their sin. It's saved people who don't like hearing about their lack of holiness. And it's the brethren that will stab you in the back when you're not looking if you're not careful. And so Paul defends himself over and over. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, For our rejoicing is this, what? The testimony of our conscience. That in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, word. Look, my conscience testifies. I'm clean before the Lord on this thing. I have meant no harm to anybody. 2 Corinthians 4, 2, But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Our conscience is clean. We're giving you the truth of God's word, and your conscience should bear witness to that. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 through 7, Giving no offense in anything, talking about his personal life. Why? That the ministry be not blamed. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And so sometimes proving yourself as the minister of God includes things like in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, and all the things that are in that list. Because ministry is tough. And the more you're going to be involved in Christian ministry, the more you're going to be that fish swimming upstream. The more you're going to find opposition. And so Paul comes into this section and he tells the Christians whom he has ministered to, who he has given his heart and soul to, who are a little twisted with him. Look, y'all, receive us. Solidarity. Let's get this thing right. Let's work on some unity. Let's get together in this thing. He didn't write what he wrote to them. To condemn them. He wrote to them because he loved them. He wrote to them to help them. So the Corinthians shouldn't avoid Paul. That's what carnal Christians do when they're rebuked. They run and they hide and they gossip and I'll show them and I'll never come again and I'll never. No, they should embrace Paul. They should receive Paul, right? Oh, and by the way, Paul. Think, let's just put ourselves in the other guy's shoes for a second. Paul was holy and righteous and in the power of the Spirit and ministering to them and benevolent and all of these things. And they were the ones who, was, who were carnal as all get out. Paul received them. Oh, uh, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing. God says, I will receive you. Paul's receiving them. God is receiving them. Well, they should receive him right back. There should be some shared unity going on. Let me ask you something. Just consider your own life. You ever had your feelings hurt by a brother in Christ? Of course. Or a sister. Have you ever, you ever had somebody? I mean, and, and I guess most specifically in the context. Somebody who's mature, somebody who's a leader, somebody who was led by the Lord to speak truth into your life, which revealed a weakness in your life, and then you got all twisted about it, and you avoid them, and you won't look them in the eye, and you won't greet them, and you won't talk to them, and you might show up, but you might not show up, and you got or whatever. Everybody plays it out their own way, but there's a certain characteristic. You ever had that happen to you? Can I just say what Paul's trying to say here? Can you just get over yourself? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of the Lord and us having a family relationship with our Heavenly Father and with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when these people are willing to receive you, you should receive them right back. Paul was filled with comfort and exceeding joy in all tribulation. You know why? Because Paul was walking with the Comforter. That's why. He was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, even when he was delivering hard truth. And you know what? That's actually comforting. It's comforting to know that the guy who has to bring a tough message is actually walking with the Lord, and he's not just going off on a tangent. Right? That brings joy even when your circumstances may not be the most pleasant for the immediate. And if you're the guy who's trying to do it, and if you're, the, if you're the lady who's trying to share God's word, and you're finding nothing but opposition as you're trying to stand for what is true, and in the testimony of your conscience is clear before the Lord, well, listen, you can have joy and you can have comfort because you know your life matters, because you know you're investing your life in something that is far greater than just yourself. And so fighting for this unity is it's an important thing. Let's get into our outline very quickly, three points. True unity among believers requires a few things. The first one is experiences. Uh, if you're really and truly going to have unity with one another, well, typically the, the closest relationships you'll ever have are with people that at some point you probably had to go through some tough times with. If you had to go through some troublous times with a brother or sister in Christ, and then you made it through, you're more connected than ever before. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A true friend will love you enough to cut you if necessary to help heal whatever's wrong. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That verse isn't over, by the way. But the kisses of an enemy, they're deceitful. Because there's some people who always just want to glad hand you every time they see you. And everything's happy and everything's great and nothing's ever wrong. And they're always wanting to hug and kiss you all the time. But they're not your friend. They're your enemy. They're not telling you the truth. They don't care if you rot in your sin as long as they look good in front of you and you you think they're cool. They're not your friend. These are the kinds of circumstances you go through with a brother or sister in Christ. These things, you come out on the other side tighter than ever before. Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: iron sharpens iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. The sharpening of that iron usually means you're filing away little shavings here and there every time you take a swipe. And those little shavings are part of you that got to fall away. And you might not love it, but you come out better for it. So you got to share some experiences. And then you got to share some consideration. Listen, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but if you're not willing to give your brother in Christ the benefit of the doubt, you're never going to have unity with him. You need to think the best of others until you are absolutely proven that you can't do that. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And the last thing is acceptance. Because you should accept the person even when the moments are hard. That's what you need to do. Paul knew how to keep that balance. The Corinthians were family. And family can say the hard things and still love and accept one another. That's what family does. Everybody's got a sibling or a cousin or somebody that's like, eh, that guy kind of gets on my nerves. But he's my brother, but he's my sister, you know. I still love him. Kind of irritates me. I still love him. That's who we are. That's what we need to understand. And you'll never have comfort in ministry as long as you can't unite with the other members of your spiritual family. You keep holding that grudge, you'll never have the comfort and you won't last. These are necessary skills. Otherwise, you're just going to be frustrated. All right, let's go into our third point, and that's security among servants. Last three verses. I'll say this is the third level, and I would say that by far it's the most impactful if you can pull it off. And by the way, I'm quite sure you can pull it off. This section begins with Paul describing the difficulty that he faced in Macedonia. It says in verse 5, when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were trouble on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Paul's ministering. This story, by the way, if you want to check it out, you go back into Acts chapter 16 and you can read it and you can find out all the details. Let me just give you a summary of what happened to Paul and his ministry in Acts chapter 16, right? So they're in Asia Minor, kind of over near where we would consider Turkey, and Paul gets a vision. Of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So Paul and the guys that are with him, they pray about it. And they're like, yeah, I think God's calling us to go over to Macedonia and to help them out. There's ministry for us to do. So they pack up and they go to Macedonia. They head west. And once they get there, they meet a demon-possessed woman. She follows Paul and the guys around saying this. Listen. These are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. You think, wow, that's pretty good. Um, Let's send her on ahead to be the forerunner and the announcer of what we're going to do because we are the servants of the Most High God and we do bring the word of salvation. And No, Paul understood that there was a demonic spirit inside of her and he turns and he casts the devil out of her. Boy, that would be a good Bible study, wouldn't it? Can I just say, demons are very religious. Just leave it at that. Paul casts out the demon, and you know what happens as a result of that? A whole bunch of people in Macedonia lose their income source because they were, you know, building idols and selling trinkets and doing different things, and they lost their ability to profit from dumb people when Paul starts casting the devils out of these people. So, once they start losing their income, then they do what unsaved people do. They rise up in an angry mob and begin to riot. And they riot in the streets and they take Paul captive and they beat him and then they throw him in prison. Paul says, When we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. And I ain't going to lie to you, within were fears. It was, getting, it was getting dicey. So can I tell you, this is in your notes, ministry brings opposition, and opposition brings discomfort. I mean, who likes that? Who's just signing up for that on your next vacation? But can I say, don't let that stop you? Because the story in Acts 16 isn't done yet. You keep going in Acts 16, and God miraculously delivers them out of the prison. And before the story's done, the Philippian jailer and his whole family get saved. Which may have been the whole reason that the Lord allowed it anyway. To get him in the prison to meet the jailer so the jailer could get saved. Who knows? Remember Galatians 6.9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So Paul is our example in ministry. We've seen this over and over again. Because Paul experienced everything that you may experience. Are you discouraged? Do you feel the burden? Have you felt cast down? Has your personal ministry brought opposition to you personally? Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 42:5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Are you cast down? Are you disquieted? Are things rumbling inside of you? Hope in God. Hope for the help that He can offer. And when you do that, you'll understand what we read back in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. There's good news. Let's go back to our text in verse number 6. Nevertheless, God, comma, that comforteth those that are cast down, comma. That phrase describes who God is. God is the God that comforts people that are cast down. Amen. So hang in there. How exactly does God do that? How does he comfort those that are cast down in ministry? Well, there's a couple of ways we'll look at quickly and we'll be done for today. The first is this, by sending reinforcements. He'll comfort you by sending reinforcements. If you find yourself in the category of a servant. Now, we we talked about sinners, and we just talked about general saints in the Lord, whether they're carnal or spiritual. Now we're talking about people who are really slugging it out in ministry. We're talking about the servants of God. We're talking about people who are going to the mats, and they are doing it, and they're putting the word out, and they're being persecuted for it, and they have difficulty coming. And God's going to send comfort. And he says in verse 6, he said, Comforteth us. How? By the coming of Titus. Man, we were down. Man, we were distressed. Man, things were going tough. And you know how God comforted us? He sent a brother. He sent the right brother at the right time. Titus is a fellow laborer who understands the challenges. And he came to encourage Paul. You guys know how it goes. You go through a tough time. You go through difficulty in your life. You go through an illness or a loss of a loved one. You go through something really hard in your life. And a lot of people could come and talk to you and try and encourage you and and console you. But the person who has the greatest consolation is the person that you know has already been through what you've been through. If they've been through what you've been through, you're more willing to receive it, aren't you? Because they know. And so God sends Titus, who is a fellow laborer in the gospel. Titus knows what all this is all about. What a blessing it is for other serving believers to come alongside and lift us up when we need it. That is one very important role of the body of Christ. That is why you should be a member of a good lo- local church. If you want to be a member of this one, stay, stick around for our meeting after this, after this service is over. Like You need to be a part of a church and you need to be a faithful part of a church so that you're connected Some people just show up in church, and they they show up, and they sit alone, and they leave alone, and they don't interact, and they don't get involved, and they don't do anything. And things go wrong in their life, and they're like, where's the church? Well, we didn't didn't even know you were here. I didn't know. Who are you? (laughs) Be a part of us. Let's get involved. Let's serve together. You know what? People who are serving, when stuff's getting dark, you know what? Other people know it, and they'll come along and help you. This is a This is a theme through the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 21 and 22, But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. So the Ephesians were, you know, they're a little freaked out. How's Paul doing? We're worried about Paul. I don't know what's going on with Paul. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send a brother, and that brother can bring word, and he can let you know, and he can comfort your hearts because, well, the coming of a brother is the right time. Is, man, that's, that's a good thing. Philippians chapter 2, and verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. You know what this is? This is the story of Jonathan and David. You know Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, right? David is serving under the wicked king Saul, and Saul's getting all twisted and demon-possessed, trying to kill David, throwing javelins at him and all this junk, and David runs out to save his life, and Saul's chasing after him with armies to try and kill him, and all this sort of thing. 1 Samuel 23, 14-16, And David abode in the wilderness and strongholds, and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. That's some trouble. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. David's hiding, man. He's just trying to survive. And what did God do? And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood. And what did he do? Strengthened his hand in God. Strengthened his hand in God. Man, David. The man after God's own heart. David, the guy that God used, right? And he would play the music and it would calm Saul down when he was freaking out. And David, the guy who's ultimately anointed to be the king that God wanted to be over all of Israel. David, who waited his turn and served Saul. David, who did all these things, got so down and discouraged. They're about to kill me. Jonathan came out, strengthened his hand. In God, And those brothers, those sisters, they're priceless. They're priceless. One servant of God offering security to another servant of God. We need to be that for one another. We really do. They get comfort by sending reinforcements. They get comfort by sending reassurance. This is it. Verse number 7, and not by his coming only. It's not just because Titus showed up. I mean, I'm glad he showed up. Cool. But by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. And and I'm just going to wrap this up by saying, when Paul received news that the Corinthians had earnest, fervent desire and love and care for him, knowing the history wasn't always so wonderful... Man, that was a huge comfort to him. People who I love, who at least temporarily were distanced, they were hurt. Now they're restored. Man, that reassurance that the relationship as a family of God and brothers and sisters is restored, man, that's that's comforting. Right? Reunited and it feels so good. Do you want to help comfort another servant of the Lord? You know what you can do? Go visit them. Send cards. Send notes of encouragement to them that are cast down. You know, that actually brings comfort. Don't underestimate the value that a good word can bring. that a a kind gesture can bring. We do a lot of that in our life groups around here. I'm so thankful for that. Write and send cards and visit and help and encourage people. That means so much. I know that in our life group, we frequently send cards to whoever's down and out. And that one time when I was down and out and I had COVID and I was home, I got the card. It was my turn. But it wasn't just like, oh, that's what the life group does. No, that really meant something to me. It really did. Because I know the people are signing something. They're like, oh, man, pray for Jeff. That meant something to me. You can do that. Listen, everybody who attempts to minister for the Lord is going to get down from time to time. It just happens. And they need comfort from the Lord. And those com- that comfort is going to come in three steps. You separate from sinners. You unite together with the saints. And then you gird up the other servants. That's what you do. So let me just ask you to consider for yourself. Have you been down lately? Because you need to remember what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God won't let you get tempted beyond your ability to bear it. He will send comfort. And sometimes that comfort's going to come in the form of another brother or sister. And so if you're doing okay and you're not currently in the state of, you know, I'm kind of hurting, well, let me ask you this. Can you be that kind of a brother or sister to others when they're down? You see, the encouragement of a fellow worker can be the most comforting, encouraging thing, especially when the battle of ministry brings what seems to be endless troubles and difficulty. You need to have the comfort. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. Let's pray together.